0: Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman, director of the Stewart Center and Europe-Russia-Eurasia program at CSIS.
1: And I'm Maria Snigovaya, senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia.
0: And you're listening to Russian Roulette, a podcast discussing all things Russia and Eurasia from the Center for Strategic International Studies. Everyone and welcome back to Russian Roulette. Today we have a very special guest, Rose Gottemiller. In addition to being an incredibly accomplished American diplomat. Rose has also had the distinct honor of being my former boss. Uh, I'm not sure the honor was hers, it was definitely mine. We both worked at the State Department together when she was uh, Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security. Today, Rose is Stephen C. Hazi lecturer at Stanford University's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies and its Center for International Security and Cooperation. Before arriving at Stanford, Rose was the Deputy Secretary General of NATO from 2016 to 2019. And before that worked for five years as the Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security at the Department of State. And prior to that, Rose was the Assistant Secretary of State for Arms Control Verification and Compliance where she acted as the chief U.S. negotiator of the new START treaty. Outside of government, prior to that, Rose led the Carnegie Moscow Center, which unfortunately is no more, now in Berlin. And she serves as a non-resident fellow in Carnegie's nuclear policy program. There's no one better to talk to about all things Russia and all things nuclear nonproliferation and arms control. And Rose, it is a great pleasure to have you here with us on the show today.
2: Well, thank you, Max. And you were definitely part of that dream team in the T front office when I was undersecretary. So it was always a pleasure to work with you. I'm also very glad to be joining with uh, Maria Sniegovaya today and look forward to our conversation.
0: Well, thank you, Rose. And maybe we'll just jump in, maybe to get your take on the current political situation right now in Russia. You're a keen watcher of all things criminology. And there's been a a lot of turmoil with Prigozhin's mutiny, with his uh, sort of march to Moscow. Do you think that this is a regime that is as stable as it was prior to the war? Are things fine inside of the Kremlin? Or is Vladimir Putin getting increasingly nervous about his tenure?
2: Well, I cannot comment on the state of Vladimir Putin's nerves. He seems rather nerveless throughout his career. He's kept a very uh, cool demeanor and a calm demeanor, and he, he does that very well. But I would say that there are a lot of dogs fighting under the rug now in the Kremlin and around the Kremlin. And we don't know exactly what's going on looking in from the outside, but we know that there is a lot of instability and a lot of things are in motion. My own personal view of the situation is that the March of Prigozhin on Moscow on June 24th set in train a kind of first stage of the post-Putin era in that different uh, power brokers and power actors in Moscow are beginning to jostle for position now and trying to figure out uh, their next steps. Should Putin go quickly or should Putin go over some period of time? Uh, And I do want to stress that I don't see Putin's uh, departure from the Kremlin as as imminent necessarily, although everyone is mortal and, and, you know, (laughs) he could fall over tomorrow. We just don't know. I think that that aspect is uncertain, but I also do uh, believe that there is a lot of jostling for position going on at the moment.
0: I'm curious with the current state of the war. Uh, do you think that the political situation inside of Russia has often been treated as sort of hopeless in the sense that for Putin, his objective is uh, well is essentially to fight a long war with Ukraine. That there is sort of no negotiating partner there on the other side, and therefore the chances of, of any potential negotiations between the Ukrainians and the Russians is just not going to be there because Putin will will simply try to. Per- persist in this fighting. Do you think there's a negotiating partner potentially down the road in Vladimir Putin, in, in the Kremlin, that the Ukrainians could sit down and you could have a negotiated end to this conflict?
2: It really depends on how things go in this next phase, I think, Putin just signed uh, the new law yesterday, extending the mobilization age up to 30 years of age. That means he has a huge new pool of manpower. And I stress manpower, there are not women really serving in the Russian armed forces, but he has a huge new pool of manpower to continue the war. And you're right, Max, I think he believes he has the resources to throw at this so much greater than Ukraine has. And he is uh, convinced that that NATO's uh, power to assist Ukraine will begin to flag and enthusiasm will begin to flag. He also has his eye on the U.S. presidential election, and I think he believes that there's a good shot uh, Donald Trump will return to power and simply remove the United States and NATO from the fight. So all of those things, no doubt, are going through Putin's mind, and he just thinks he can, he can wait this one out. The evidence points in that direction, like raising the mobilization age so he has a bigger pool of soldiers to draw on, even though Russia has taken huge losses in this, in this terrible war of aggression that Putin launched in February of 2022. You know, I think he's confident of one thing, and that is that the Russian people are not going to rise up and not going to, to try to topple him or, or lay down their arms and walk home as they did during World War One at the time of the Bolshevik Re- Revolution. I, th- I think he's he's feeling that he can play the long game and, and not worry uh, about that aspect. Although, as I said a moment ago, I think he probably is beginning to worry about, uh, about the different power structures and power players in Moscow and their jostling for position.
0: I'm curious if you think that some of the... the Recent in, internal moves where we've just seen uh, Alexei Navalny being sentenced for nearly 20 more years, Vladimir Karamurza, similar situation. But then Putin's also seems to be taking uh, some action against the, the hardline nationalist right, Igor Straukov being ar- arrested by the Kremlin uh, after being quite critical and arguing for a more hawkish stance to the war. Has the kind of reaction to Purgosian, do you see Putin having kind of stabilized the situation by reasserting himself, by sort of taking action against those that are potentially speaking out against them? And do you think do you think that's going to be effective?
2: I would say that, Max, if there were a more generalized purge going on, and in the week after the Prigozhin march on Moscow, there were signs that perhaps there would be a, a general purge of, of the allies uh, of Prigozhin. For example, General Sotovikin, who had been in, of course, a leadership position commanding troops in Ukraine, but also had established clearly that he was a, uh, I would say, positive proponent of what Prigozhin was doing. We still don't know exactly what has happened to Sotovikin, but it hasn't led to, I would say, an, a, a wide-ranging purge in the armed forces or indeed in the military uh, blogger community. I would put it down to that, that old cliche of, you know, you 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 kill one fly and you leave it out on the picnic platter so that the other flies know to stay away. It's that kind of, of metaphor that he's cracked down hard on on Gherkin. He's, um, yeah, Suravikin has disappeared from view and everybody else has been issued a warning not to play these games. And I, I would say it's more in that, in that vein. But uh, it's, it's, again, part of this jostling that is going on in Moscow, which we don't fully understand uh, looking in from the outside.
1: From the Western perspective, some of the early responses to Prigozhin's mutiny suggested that it seems that some of the Western politicians are more afraid about what may follow Putin than Putin himself. I wonder to what extent do you think it's true? Do you think Prigozhin's mutiny may make some of the Western politicians at least more likely to negotiate with Putin in order to end this conflict on terms that are somewhat acceptable, say, uh, for whom just to make sure that he is somebody who survives in power, unless otherwise something else that replaces him may be arguably even worse, like Prigozhin? So what's your assessment of the Western response and how the political thinking is going to unravel?
2: For me, Maria, the most important reference point for NATO leaders, for Western leaders, including the president of the United States, is is what the Ukrainian leadership wants to do, what President Zelensky wants to do. And that has been the emphasis entirely. I don't think, you know, somehow preserving Vladimir Putin in power in the Kremlin would be a goal of Western leaders at this point. I also like the way that it's become increasingly clear through some stories that have appeared in the media and so forth that the United States has clearly conveyed at a high level, apparently CIA direct. Bill Burns conveyed this message that we are not you know trying to oust you from office Vladimir Putin we are not about regime change in Russia but we want to see a fair and just and quick uh, outcome to this war in Ukraine and that means getting your troops out of Ukraine so those kinds of messages have been conveyed very clearly from from Washington and I th- I think that's rather helpful but I don't see uh, you know where where the anxiety has come I think watching what happened on June 24th, and maybe this is because of my own area of expertise, but I think a lot of people are concerned about another meltdown of central authority in Russia, such as we saw at the breakup of the USSR in 1991-92, uh, and, and concern about Russia's vast stocks of weapons of mass destruction, particularly nuclear weapons and fissile material. And I think that's where a lot of anxiety is coming now. And, and Putin himself, on that day, he did cite the uh, Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, and he, he did talk on several occasions over that weekend about the possibility of civil war breaking out in Russia. Now that quickly fell out of the press, quickly fell off the table. It's not something that is being emphasized now by the Russian media, but I think that anxiety is present as, as uh, leaders on the outside looking in wonder what is going to happen in Russia.
0: Rose, you brought up the concern over Russia's nuclear arsenal. There was a lot of nuclear saber rattling from the Kremlin, uh, particularly throughout 2022 that has seemed to die down, though, in kind of government affiliated think tanks and other state affiliated intellectuals. You see now uh, beginning uh, uh, the rise of sort of chatter about how Russia could sort of employ its nuclear arsenal uh, to to sort of threaten the West and, and threaten Ukraine. What is keeping you up at night right now when it comes to Russia's nuclear arsenal? What is the thing that you're really watching? And and are you you being kept up at night?
2: I'm always being kept up at night by some set of issues to do with weapons of mass destruction. Not all of them having to do with Russia, but nevertheless, uh, yes, I tend to stare at the ceiling sometimes and think about these problems. But that's just me. In any event, honestly, uh, I have been concerned about the potential, particularly in 2022, of this nuclear saber-rattling leading to uh, the use of a tactical nuclear weapon or some tactical nuclear weapons in the Ukraine conflict on the ground in in Ukraine to try to meet some military objectives. Now, it seems like the Russian uh, armed forces, the military men, have advised Putin against that. And so they have backed off. And indeed, you're right, those kinds of threats have have really become more more muffled recently. I think we cannot totally discard them if Russia somehow finds its back to the wall. If Vladimir Putin himself finds his back to the wall, uh, nuclear weapons use still may occur in this Ukraine conflict. But more concerning, to me now is uh, this set of, of uh, crazy debates that, that are going on. People like Sergei Karaganov and, and Dmitry Trenin, who's my former deputy from the Carnegie Moscow Center, it's it's very strange to, to see his evolution. But honestly, they've been talking about nuclear apocalypse as a good thing. And well, if the West is not going to pay attention to us, th- what we can do now is you know launch some nuclear weapons against some NATO cities. And, and uh, if we take the world with us, well, as Putin said back in 2018, is a world without Russia a world worth having? And I think that kind of started this apocalyptic strain among Russian experts and and actors. And I I think it's just nuts, to be honest with you. But I will say I've also been very happy to see how other Russian experts have stepped forward and begun to talk uh, very, very clearly and decisively about the fact that, that Indeed, this is crazy, not in Russia's interest, not in anybody else's interest, to be toying with the notion of nuclear apocalypse. I do think that this is an area to be worried about. It's interesting that the former president of Russia, Dmitry Medvedev, who, by the way, was President Obama's counterpart in the New START treaty negotiations, they actually worked rather well together in getting that treaty across the finish line. This was this brief interregnum from 2007 to 2011 when Medvedev was in the presidency. But Medvedev has now turned into the most vehement of nuclear saber rattlers nuclear weapons use may be necessary in order to get the West to sit up and take notice of Russia's national security interests. So it's Medvedev who is playing this mouthpiece role, and, and I do find it a rather strange phenomenon, especially given his, his past and, and the good work he did with uh, Obama to bring the New START treaty into force.
0: Can I ask about the, the concern about potential escalation of this conflict that has seemed to kind of delay or, or factored into the thinking, at least, when it comes to the, the Biden administration's decision on sending ser- certain weapon systems. And there's sort of been a gradual ramp up as opposed to simply providing Ukraine with perhaps everything it needs from a conventional standpoint. And so you see debates over attackums and F-16s, and oftentimes there's an argument that is made, and I'm not sure how much this is actually central to the White House decision making, but uh, argument that's made, well, this could be escalatory and concerns about uh, Russia's reaction and potentially a cycle of escalation leading to nuclear use. Do you think those concerns are, are merited? Do you think How do you think the White House and the Biden administration has handled the arming of Ukraine? Do you think it should go faster or is that kind of at the right pace?
2: You know, my view of of how the White House has been handling uh, the weapons deliveries to Ukraine is that they are taking a very pragmatic approach, which is Ukraine has to be ready to operate these pieces of equipment. That was the argument around the the tanks, right? Sending the tanks over tanks that need a great deal of logistical support. They need very sophisticated maintenance expertise to take care of them. They need certain kinds of, of fueling capacity. And so the idea is, okay, yeah, you want tanks, you want tanks, you want tanks, but let's figure out how we can get you tanks that you can actually put onto the battlefield sooner rather than later in order to help you with this this summer offensive this year in 2023. So my view is that there's been this kind of pragmatic approach. It's the same with the F-16s. It's going to take the Ukrainians time to train, to fly those aircraft. So let's figure out what else we can do in the meantime to get you capacity and capability that you can use right now. And meanwhile, my view is, and this is just the news today, but the Ukrainians seem to be taking things into their own hands by extending the range of of some of their drones. They've been able to attack overnight Novorossiysk, the major Russian port on the Black Sea. Sea, where a lot of the Navy ships have been, have been based. And also, of course, it's a big port infrastructure for, for shipping of Russian goods and Kazakh oil, by the way, out of the Black Sea. I think, you know, the Ukrainians haven't taken specific credit for this attack overnight, but I think we can clearly understand now that they have been able to extend the range of their, their drones that they've been using to attack. And so they themselves, I think, are taking things into their own hands in, in many ways. The role that the United States is playing in that is I'm sure a very subtle one, and behind the scenes, the United States has not wanted to involve itself in Ukrainian decision-making, again, avoiding escalation in this in this battle, but also trying to ensure that U.S. capabilities and capacities extended to Ukraine are not being used to attack Russian territory.
0: I'm curious if, when looking at this war, if, there's sort of broader nuclear lessons that, that you've drawn from it. I mean, my kind of takeaway is that, that, that Russia's possession of strategic nuclear weapons in some ways has effectively deterred the United States from, from physically entering the war and sending forces to you know, engage with the Russians, as was sort of called for with a no-fly zone early on, and, and, and has sort of continuously, I think, been, been sort of brought up. Uh, at least indirectly. Uh, So it's deterred direct involvement. On the other hand, the use of the threat of tactical nuclear weapons, which Russia has kind of hinted at and threatened throughout this conflict, hasn't seemed to really deter the Ukrainians. And the Russians haven't really been willing to employ them in part because it's really questionable what battlefield use they would have. So do you, I'm curious for your take, do you think that, that this is sort of diminished the importance of tactical nuclear weapons as as kind of a, a military tool? Or what sort of broader nuclear lessons have you taken from this conflict?
2: I think, first of all, there's a mutual deterrence effect going on. You'll note that the Russians have been very careful not to touch NATO territory, although they've come very close in recent days attacking the Danube ports uh, of Ukraine right across the river from Romanian ports. And so there is, I think, a mutual deterrent effect going on because of the existence of strategic nuclear weapons on both sides. I think, if anything, this war has shown the, frankly, limited utility of nuclear weapons, whether at the strategic level or at the tactical level if you are really looking for warfighting capabilities the Soviet Union backed off of nuclear warfighting in the 1970s and since that time essentially nuclear weapons are are weapons to be left on the shelf and they they pose essentially a a deterrence uh, not threat but a, they they serve as a deterrent but in other ways they do not affect the outcome of the war and uh, as I said it is pretty clear that in 2022 there was some notion out there on the Russian side. This has appeared in the media that uh, they could have some operational effect on the battlefield in Ukraine. But in the end of the day, the general staff apparently counselled Putin that they they would not be effective in in succeeding in carrying out battlefield tasks and gaining objectives. So they uh, apparently shelved the idea. So I think that's that's clear. Nuclear war fighting uh, is not going to get you what you need. You end up having to. Have your own troops in a radioactive environment, which nobody wants to have to deal with, and certainly your troops don't want to have to deal with. So in the end of the day, I think nuclear weapons have proven once again that they are weapons of deterrence, but not weapons that have military utility. Well,
1: we certainly hope so. Rose, I wanted to follow up on something you've said before about the pragmatic approach of the administration towards uh, Ukraine weapons provision. Uh, my reading, though, of Kiev's uh, complaints, it's not just uh, that the administration is not providing of s- certain weapons, but it's the, even those that are provided, they're really supplied in very small quantities, especially given the fact that, you know, this is a war that's very highly consuming uh, in terms of artillery and whatnot, very intense. I know that uh, many uh, answers to that question will be, well, the U.S. does not itself even have enough, say, weapons in supply. But, for example, Pavel Luzin, a military analyst recently said that out of more than 2,000 Abrams tanks uh, that are available in storage in the United States, the U.S. Uh, so far has only promised to s- supply 31, That's This is the question about not quality of the weapons, but the quantity, which, of course, is a highly, highly uh, you know, relevant issue for Ukraine. And the same is true for Germany, which promised some things, but recently backed down, according to Kiev, again, from some promises, uh, and also is not willing to supply more, refused to supply long-range terrorist missiles and whatnot. So could you please comment on that?
2: Yeah, part of the problem, of course, is that after the fall of the wall or the breakup of the Soviet Union, the great uh, period of global peace was declared, and the United States and its NATO allies shut down a lot of uh, defense industrial capacity. So when orders were put in, they were small batch orders, and that's what the defense companies are complaining about now. They say, you want us to up our production, but you're giving us, continuing to give us uh, orders that do not really provide us enough uh, resources to modernize our production capacity and and production lines so that we can do high-speed production of larger batches. So there are some structural problems in defense industries across NATO, uh, including in the United States, that are contributing to this problem. But in addition to that, I would go back to the point I made before, Maria, and that is the United States, I think, is, is pragmatic in that it is looking to ensure that the Ukrainians are able to efficiently and effectively operate these systems and and ensure that they are going to have a battlefield effect. I cannot comment on on you know 30 plus Abrams tanks versus 2,000 in storage. I don't know what has gone into that decision making up to this point, but I imagine it has something to do with uh, let's let's try this and see how it works and make sure the Ukrainians can operate these systems and then perhaps a more capability will be forthcoming, more tanks will be forthcoming. Again, I'm just speculating. I am not privy to the decisions going on at the moment in Washington, but, but I think that is probably part of the effect that we're seeing.
1: Well, thank you. That makes actually a lot of sense. The good news, though, it looks like the Allies are really confident about and really agree on long-term support for Ukraine. And therefore, my next question is associated to that uh, precisely, what are your thoughts on potential security guarantees, specifically long-term ones, right, that the Western advocates of Ukraine are calling for, uh, such as, for example, the models established in the U.S. relationship with Israel or Taiwan? Uh, Is that something, do you think, possible? For example, given the size of Ukraine, some people have said that uh, Israel, for example, or Taiwan are much smaller countries, and therefore, uh, if we wanted to supply them with long term weapons, right, maybe uh, a much larger scale of investment is needed. How sustainable, how possible, viable is this?
2: I think that we need to watch very closely the talks that are going on right now. It was little noticed, but at the time of the NATO summit in Vilnius a couple of weeks ago, the G7 also met and each of the G7 countries pledged and invited other countries to join in the pledge to develop uh, essentially bilateral and parallel security arrangements with the Ukrainians, security assurances of various kinds. And those negotiations between Ukraine and the United States are going on right now. So I think that it will include material support and continuing material support for the Ukrainian Armed Forces, also support for the reform process in the Ukrainian uh, government, because uh, governance of Ukraine and the fight against corruption are going to continue to be issues that will be uh, really important, I think, to ensure that Ukraine is incorporated in the long run into NATO and into the European Union. And so being ready and able to work in close partnership for some period of time on those really difficult but intensive efforts to bring Ukraine up to, to every standard in terms of uh, what NATO and the European Union will, will require, I think, I think that's, that's going to be important. Those, that relationship and the strength of that relationship between Washington and Kyiv and key of other G7 capitals, I think will will really be an essential security guarantee for Ukraine uh, going forward.
0: Rose, I think that's a good segue for you to take off your Russia hat, your Russia nerd hat, and you can put on your NATO nerd hat as the former deputy secretary general of, of NATO. I'm curious for your thoughts uh, in reaction to the Vilnius summit the mood, at least in the press and in, in public, seemed to be rather mixed that Ukraine didn't get sort of firmer guarantees. What was your takeaway from, from the summit? And do you think that the focus on Ukraine membership was maybe a little premature or was that the the right thing for NATO to be to be really discussing at that summit?
2: I think it was a good debate for NATO to have and it clearly conveyed the the strength of the debate and its intensity, really conveyed the attention that that NATO is paying to both uh, helping the Ukrainians fight this war of aggression and uh, really get the Russians off their territory, but also showed that NATO is committed to Ukraine and to its national security and defense uh, over the long term. It is interesting to me that over the uh, now 18 plus months since uh, Ukraine had to begin fighting the Russians, essentially NATO countries across Europe and the United States have been emptying out their, their own stores of weapons and, and equipment and ammunition to provide to the Ukrainians. So in a way, and, and there's, there were some jokes about this during the summit, now Ukraine is the, the best supplied and, and most ready fighting force uh, among the NATO allies and partners. I'm not sure I would compare them to the US armed forces but nevertheless they are, they are now a proven well-honed fighting force. And that is very much due to the cooperation with NATO. It also, in, in a bizarre way, has afforded NATO countries the opportunity now to modernize their own armed forces in the way that they should have been doing. In the past, there used to be, uh, when I was at NATO, a great deal of concern that the countries of Eastern and Central Europe, former members of the Warsaw Pact, were still deploying Warsaw Pact-era equipment and did not have uh, yet the intention and perhaps the the will to modernize and bring their forces into greater interoperability with with NATO armies overall. But the fact that they emptied out their arsenals to send all that Warsaw Pact equipment to the Ukrainians, again, the Ukrainians could pick it up and use it immediately, that meant that now they have got to make those investments in becoming modern NATO fighting forces with NATO equipment and interoperability, interoperability with uh, the armed forces across NATO. So in many ways, this war has you know, been as tragic ad- as it is. It has also been a spur to modernization in NATO, and I, I think that's a good thing.
0: You were at NATO during a-, a fairly rocky time in transatlantic relations, and NATO seemed to be, you know, pulled in many different directions during the previous decade. You know, it was wanting to focus on the Middle East. It had forces in Afghanistan. It seems that now NATO is sort of back to having a clear focus and mission to really focus on on the threat posed by Russia. Do you see sort of a real tangible difference between kind of NATO today and then when you were there, which was only a few few years ago?
2: 2014 and the invasion of Crimea uh, by the Russian Federation, I now think of it as the first Ukrainian invasion. That really started this process. So it was already well in train when I arrived at NATO in 2016, and it was the Wales Summit in 2014 where the allies pledged uh, to this famous 2% of GDP commitment to modernizing their armed forces. When I was there, the biggest problem was very few of of the NATO allies were actually fulfilling that commitment. And President Donald Trump came down very, very hard on them, even with threats to withdraw the United States from NATO. This was, to my mind, a very effective uh, stick (laughs) with which to beat the allies. And frankly, they began to pay more attention to their 2% commitment during uh, the Trump administration. I will say my boss, who is still the direct secretary general of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, was very, very good at handling President Trump and also ensuring that the NATO allies took his uh, words very, very seriously so that this trend toward more defense expenditure began really during that, that era. But you're right, it was a very, very difficult, very difficult period. I think since uh, the, the war broke out in Ukraine, it has redoubled uh, NATO's resolve uh, to come up to 2% of GDP. Uh, many, many NATO countries still do, don't reach that, that level, but they're all heading in the right direction. And again, the necessity of deterrence and defense against Russia uh, I think have have really pulled that into tighter and tighter focus. You're right, after uh, the breakup of the of the Soviet Union, uh, NATO turned its attention to the counterterrorism fight, but you will see even with uh, this new defense plan coming out of the Vilnius Summit, the focus on deterrence and defense against Russia that the southern NATO countries were also resolved that the counterterrorism fight still be front and center among NATO's primary objectives. So uh, counterterrorism is still there, but I think it has been clear that NATO is moving back to, uh, to its original purpose, which was to ensure that the USSR at the time uh, was not in a position to overrun all of Europe.
1: Thank you so much, Rose. And may I quickly jump in with a provocative question? I know that we're near in the end, but nonetheless. In conversations with my Russian liberal pro-Western colleagues, I always hear uh, them arguing that if the West and NATO in particular were more proactive back in the days in incorporating Russia into the structures, so essentially Russia becoming part of NATO, we wouldn't have avoided this conflict. I wonder if you have a position on that. Do you think there's something to that argument or is it completely false?
2: I'm just curious. My perspective on this, Maria, was formed during the time I was working for President Clinton in the immediate years following the the Soviet breakup. My my responsibilities at that time were denuclearization of Ukraine Kazakhstan and Belarus which is a whole different and controversial topic at this moment but the other half of my responsibilities had to do with what was called the Gore Chernomyrdin commission vice president gore and prime minister chernomyrdin were responsible for a major commission across the US and Russian governments the primary purpose of which was to create common ground for a long-term and cooperative relationship between the United States, and the Russian Federation, where we would be deeply entwined and working together closely on critical projects. Sadly, the International Space Station is, is the only remnant uh, of that effort, but I think it's a great example of what our objective was, and that is to ensure that there was a uh, mutuality of interest and a mutuality of cooperation between the two sides, with some equality implied by the, the kind of cooperation we were looking for. Unfortunately, we didn't end up there, and the years after 2000 when Vladimir Putin became president and, and different, of course, different political forces arrived in the United States as well with different interests. That effort at cooperation pretty much fell apart, except for the International Space Station. But that's how I think about what we were trying to accomplish. We realized, and indeed, Gorbachev and Yeltsin realized that NATO could not absorb Russia. You know, Russia is a Eurasian power. It has borders on the Pacific Ocean as well as as on the North Sea and the Baltic. And to have this idea that somehow this Eurasian power would become part of NATO, it would have changed the the profile of NATO. NATO entirely. NATO is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and its center of gravity is in the uh, Atlantic Ocean and the relationship between North America and Europe, not in the Far East. That is how I think about this question. We tried, and we tried very, very hard, but neither country had, uh, I would say, the ability to stick to it over time, and different elements of politics came into play after a while. But I do think there was an effort, a sincere effort by President Clinton and at the time the Yeltsin-Chernomyrden government in, in Russia to try to have a mutuality of interest between the United States and, and Russia. And that would create the conditions for a stable against security relationship as well.
0: Maybe one final question. I'm curious, as the as the lead negotiator of the New START Treaty, what do you see as the prospects of the United States and Russia sitting down again in nuclear arms control uh, talks. Vladimir Putin and in, in the, in the Russian Federation announced this withdrawal from the New START treaty uh, in, in February. This treaty, I think, as you would, I, I assume you believe, is is vital to, to U.S. national security and to, and to Russia's national security. So, do you think that once the war, if the war dies down, that that U.S. and Russian negotiators despite being uh, intense adversaries, could sit down and and begin to have uh, negotiations again.
2: I hope so. That has certainly been the history throughout the Cold War, uh, starting from the near catastrophe of the Cuban Missile Crisis. We were in the midst of very uh, deep Cold War when we negotiated the Nonproliferation uh, Treaty, when we negotiated the first Strategic Arms Limitation Agreement in 1972, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. We were you know, at odds over Vietnam. We were at odds over what was going on in the Middle East throughout that period. And even we were raising our deaf levels against each other uh, throughout particularly the Middle East conflicts in, in the late 60s and, and up to the mid-70s. So we had a lot of stress and strain during the Cold War, but we were still able to pr- pursue strategic nuclear arms control talks and, uh, and achieve agreements as well. I hope for a return to those days, but at the moment the Kremlin is saying we are not willing We're linking further action on strategic arms control with you satisfying our concerns about Ukraine and about what we believe are our uh, security rights and needs. So that, to my mind, is extremely unfortunate. And it's to my mind, it's also not in the Russian national security interest because the United States has embarked on a two-decade modernization of our nuclear triad. The Russians ought to be keeping an eye on what the United States may be able to accomplish in a nuclear modernization uh, if uh, the limits of New START and a follow-on treaty are no longer in place. So the Russians should be concerned. And particularly also now that the Chinese are building up as well, Russia will never admit that they're concerned and are keeping an eye on China, but I'm sure they are keeping an eye on China. So everybody says the United States has a two-nuclear peer problem. Well, Russia's going to have a two-nuclear peer problem as well, and they need to be paying attention to that. I have to post one correction, Max. The Russians have not withdrawn from New START. They have suspended their implementation of New START. So the limits of the treaty at this moment stay very much in place. The Biden administration is resolved to keep the limits in place. Again, it gives predictability for our nuclear modernization to, to know that the, the Russians at least remain under limits. And of course, we hope to get the Chinese to begin to talk about controlling their own nuclear modernization. We'll see how that goes in the coming years.
0: Well, I think that's a topic for, for another conversation. Unfortunately, we're gonna to have to leave it at that, Rose. I wanna thank you so much for joining us. I also wanna thank you for being an outstanding boss. As everyone can tell, there are a few people that know more about Russia, nuclear arms control, national security, but also there are a few people that have been as good a mentor as you have been. So thank you for that and thank you for for joining us. And for all our listeners, if you haven't already, please subscribe to our show, uh, give it a rating and review. And also, please subscribe to our sister podcast, The Eurofile, wherever you get your podcasts. This is our last episode of Russian Roulette for the next few weeks, as we will be taking a short break over August, but we'll be back on September 7th and look forward to having you join us then. Rose, thank you.
2: Thank you, Max. My pleasure. Thank you, Maria. You've been listening to Russian Roulette. We hope you enjoyed this episode
1: and tune in again soon.
0: Russian Roulette releases new episodes every two weeks on Thursdays and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and share our
1: episodes online. And be sure to check out all the latest analysis by the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at csis.org.